What will you say? Uh, Let's turn to Acts chapter 24. The title of the message is, What Will You Say? What will you say? And as you're turning there, many of us have been following the Zimmerman trial, or followed the Zimmerman trial. It incited a lot of very strong opinions and emotions in our nation. Well, this morning, we're going to be following a trial that incited even more opinions and emotions in the nation of Israel than the Zimmerman trial incited in our nation. That nation was riveted by this trial that we're going to read about right now. And though Paul was the one on trial, what really was on trial is what Paul believed. You know how like when the Supreme Court will take a case, because what they want to try is the idea behind that case, Okay, whether it is the current case of Hobby Lobby that does not want to take on a health care mandate from the government that includes abortion or abortion like uh, pills. And so, yes, Hobby Lobby, which is a a private company out of Oklahoma, is on trial. But what's really on trial is, does our country have the right to make a private Christian employer provide something that is against their conscience? You get that? All right. So this morning. Paul is on trial, but Paul knew, and Luke, the one who chronicled the the trial, the the one who wrote the book of Acts, they knew that what was on trial was far more than just the Apostle Paul. What's on trial this morning is Paul's faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah of Israel. And, And this trial, it riveted the Christians of the first century, because like the Zimmerman trial, they were very interested in it. The outcome was very important to them. And even more so than the Zimmerman trial, the outcome of this trial had an effect on their lives. Because Christians throughout the first century world were trying to figure out, what will I say when I go on trial for my faith? How can I give an answer to someone for the faith that I have that Jesus Christ is Lord? He's the Messiah. If they happen to be Jewish Christians, how can I tell my Jewish friends that Messiah has come and it's Jesus? And they're going to go crazy. They're going to want to kill me like they wanted to kill Paul. So the first century church was riveted by this trial. And friends, the 21st century church, us, we should be riveted by it as well. I want you to pay attention as we read this trial. Because Paul is making a case for faith in Jesus Christ as he defends himself from these charges by the Jews. And as he makes that defense, he's teaching us how we can say what we need to say when we're questioned about our faith. Now, some of you may be here this morning and you actually have questions about faith in Jesus Christ. First of all, let me tell you, thank you for coming. If I don't know you, my name is Al Pino. I'm one of the pastors here. You're wondering, who's that guy up there screaming at me right now, talking about squeaky pulpits? Well, it's me. It's Al Pino. But you guys are really slow, or it's summertime, or something's wrong. I'm not sure, but it's like, wake up. Uh, and, and so this message this morning is about faith. In Jesus Christ. And though Paul is on trial, and though people are asking him questions about it, you may be here this morning saying, Al, I've come here asking questions. And I just want to say thanks for being here. I think you've come to the right place, friend. Because I think you want to go to the place, if you have questions about Jesus, you want to go to the place that is preaching the Bible. Even from squeaky pulpits. You you don't want to get your questions about Jesus answered from the mass media of this world today that often misrepresents him or from people giving you their opinions. No, you want to go to here. Because why? Because if you are going to reject the Christian faith, don't you think it's wise to reject the actual Christian faith and not some caricature of it, some straw man? So I invite you to sit back and listen carefully to the case that Paul is going to make for Christ in Acts 24. And as you open your Bibles to Acts 24, or maybe you're looking on 
with your neighbor on his Bible. I pray that when you hear the case for Christ, you will reach a verdict of faith in Christ that caused you to repent and believe in the resurrected Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So church, let us follow the trial, shall we, of the Apostle Paul in Acts 24. Read along with me. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. He was buttering up the judge, okay? But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. He points to Paul. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riot among all the Jews throughout the world. And he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The prosecution rests its case. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Verse 10, and when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied. Now Paul makes his defense. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over the nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it has been not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I do confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation. Alms are money for the poor. To my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day but Felix having a rather accurate knowledge of the way put them off saying When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept, Paul should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. And he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he had hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and declaring to do and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Dear believer, would you be able to defend yourself like Paul did if you were on trial for your faith? Dear believer, are you able to make a clear and compelling case for faith? In Jesus Christ. See, that's God's burden for us today. That burden is that we would be able to make a defense for the hope that is within us. 1 Peter 3.15 on the screen. 
The Apostle Peter, one of Paul's contemporaries, wrote to us that very command. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. This is faith in Jesus Christ. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, through Paul's defense here in Acts 24, God is going to teach us how to make a clear and compelling defense for our faith in Jesus Christ. Here's the question that drives the sermon this morning. Here's the question that drives your thinking, my thinking, as we listen and as we study this trial. What will you say when questioned about your faith? What Will you say when questioned about your faith? Oh, Al, I'm never questioned about my faith. Well, then you should question that you're not questioned. I mean, I would question if I'm not questioned. (laughs) That means I'm probably not living in a way that would indicate I have faith in Christ. (laughs) Or perhaps that I'm a coward. And I've done both, even recently. But I ask God for the grace to live as if I had faith in Christ and not be a coward. And when that happens, someone's going to ask me, what what is this faith, Al? Why do you have faith? And in that moment, friend, what will you say? Remember, the book of Acts is about Christ coming and saying, be my witnesses, I'm giving you my spirit, go. So what will we say? Oh, friends, let us give greater attention to this trial than we gave to the Zimmerman trial for the outcome of this trial. And what's on trial here, faith in Jesus Christ, is far more far-reaching. See, we know from last week's message by Bentley that because of the riot that broke out in Jerusalem and then the subsequent plot to kill Paul, the Roman commander of the Jerusalem garrison, this Lysias, sent Paul and his Jewish accusers to Felix. And if we can show the map up, and Felix governed... In his praetorium, he governed with all his soldiers in a town called Caesarea. So big map, big city. So Jerusalem, Caesarea was the port city. It was like like the entryway to Jerusalem. So that's where Felix governed. He was a Roman governor of all Judea because the Romans had conquered Israel. They had conquered this land, and he was governing them with a strong, strong hand. He was a brutal governor. And so Paul is making his defense to Felix. And in making his defense to Felix, he's going to teach us how to answer this question. So let's listen in so that we might know what to say when we are questioned about our faith. And the first thing we see, point one, is before Paul declared his faith, he demonstrated his faith. Point one, demonstrate that your motive is is to bless. Look at the first charge against Paul. You will find it there in verse 5a, 24, 5a. And Tertullus said this, For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. This was a very serious charge. Because at that day, In Jerusalem, there were Jewish zealots. There were men that were nationalistic. Like if anybody's from Puerto Rico, there's a group of people in Puerto Rico that want Puerto Rico to be its own nation. Okay, And sometimes in the past, those people have done radical things. They've tried to incite riots, blown things up. right? Other countries have had that happen in, in Spain, the Basque country. So in Jerusalem, it would be these Jewish nationalists. And so they were trying to get Israel free, and so they were always trying to incite a riot. And you know what the Romans did with those guys? They hunted them down like dogs and killed them mercilessly. They crucified them. So when Tertullus says to Felix, and Felix was one of the main guys that did it, Felix was, ran on a law and order you know, agenda. I mean, Felix was a tough guy. So when Tertullus is making the case against Paul that this man incites riots, he knows that Felix could immediately go, oh, if you prove that, Paul, you're dead. I'm crucifying you tomorrow. It was a serious, serious charge. Can I just say, before we move on in Paul's trial, that oftentimes, dear Christian, you're going to get a chance to talk about your faith 
when you are wrongly accused by the world of being someone who foments riot, a troublemaker, a plague on our society. When, when we're accused of being the ones that are causing the trouble when marriage is totally redefined. Or when folks want to kill babies in the womb. See, we're, we're going to be the ones charged with the riot. We're going to be called the plague of our culture. We're going to, they're going to want to remove us. And we're going to have to pay attention on how Paul handles it, because that's how we want to handle it. So instead of screaming back at this guy, instead of getting in his face, what does Paul do? Look at verse 10. Paul immediately demonstrates his heart to bless. The governor nods to Paul. Paul acknowledges the governor, and in verse 11 he says this, You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to the worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone, verse 12, or stirring up a crowd. Paul says, I came here to worship, not to cause a riot. Look at verse 17. Further, Paul says in verse 17 the following, Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present an offering. Friends, the first step of knowing what to say when we're questioned about our faith is to come with a heart to bless. Paul did not come with a heart to curse. He came with a heart to bless. He brought tons of money with him from the rich churches in Greece, modern-day Greece and Asia. The church in Jerusalem was very poor. And he brought tons of money, and he came to his country, and he came to bless his people. He came to honor them. He wasn't guilty of a riot. He was only guilty of coming with money to bless his poor friends. In addition to the charge of being a rioter, he was also charged with desecrating the temple. Look back at verse 5, and you will see that Tertullius says the following. After being the ringleader, verse 5, verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple, but we arrested him. So what Tertullius is saying is, this guy came to cause a riot, And this guy came to desecrate or dishonor us. And what does Paul say? What does Paul say to that charge? He says, oh no, I did not come to desecrate the temple. Back to verse 16. No, I came with alms. I came with a clear conscience. I came to offer a a sacrifice. And then look at verse 18. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. Paul's saying, let me defend myself. I want to demonstrate to you my motive to bless this people, to bless this nation, and to honor their traditions as much as I can. I came to bless and I came to honor. Friends, here's the point. Before we can declare what we believe in Jesus Christ, we must demonstrate a heart to bless. Is that in our hearts? Is it in your heart, friend? See, if if we are intent on doing good, if we are intent on blessing people, then it will be hard for us to be charged with doing anything other than believing in Jesus Christ and what he taught. Now, I'm guilty of that. But I don't want to be guilty of being called someone who curses and dishonors others in their traditions. See, if you you listen carefully to Paul's defense, look at verse 20. When Paul finally gets down, he defends himself against all three charges, and he says to Felix, Felix, I'm I'm not guilty of any of these, and let these guys prove it, and they know they can't. In verse 21 he says, other than this one thing, this is what I'm guilty of, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Friends, if it's with respect to faith in Jesus Christ, I'm on trial. 
but I want to do it in this culture in a way that doesn't offend unnecessarily, in a way that I don't curse people and I'm angry, in a way that is, that is being selfish. God calls us to have this heart. Having this heart, demonstrating a heart to bless, point two, we are now to declare the big picture of God's salvation story. Declare the big picture of God's salvation story. Now, drop back into verse 5. There were three charges. The first charge is he's fomenting riot. The third charge was he's desecrating the temple. But look at the second charge. The second charge in 5, it says, all the Jews throughout the world, that's fomenting the riots, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. A ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So Paul is going to take this opportunity now, answering this charge, to present to them the big picture of God's salvation story. Because what's at stake in this charge is the following. Who is true Israel? Who has the moral high ground? Is it Paul and his little sect of heretical Jews who claim Jesus is Messiah? Or, it is, or is it us, Felix, the rulers of Israel, the guys that run that temple there in Jerusalem? Who is true Israel? I mean, it's kind of like in America today. Who's a true patriot? Who's a true American? Is it that man or woman that is manning a post somewhere in this world defending our liberties? Is it that unseen servant that is, that is just working hard to, to, to provide goods and services for us? Or is it Edward Snowden? Don't know the name? Don't get out much, do you? Edward Snowden, he's the man who is presently, his face is plastered over every news broadcast, who decided to let the world know our top secrets of how we monitor people so that we aren't attacked by terrorists. He's been given asylum in Russia. Edward Snowden has uh, broken U.S.-Soviet relations. And pay attention to that one. Uh, There's some stuff coming down the pike on that one. Well, you know what some people say? Edward Snowden is a patriot. I read an article yesterday in the Washington Post with that title. Edward Snowden is a patriot. Is he? I don't know where your politics are. Don't want to get into that. But that's what we're talking about. So when people see Paul with that much emotion, even more emotion, they're saying, is Paul a patriot? Is he that that person who loves our nation? Is he true Israel? Or is Paul Edward Snowden who's betrayed us? And what he needs to be is killed. You know, there are some people who say, you know, Edward Snowden just needs to disappear. Like the CIA just do whatever they do and boom, he's gone. I don't advocate that. But there's some people that believe that. Well, even more so back then, there were people saying, kill Paul now. He is not true Israel. And Paul stands up and he says, wait a second. You are accusing me of being the leader of a sect of the Nazarenes? And listen to what he says. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Look at verse 14. So he's talking to Felix, and he says this. But this I confess to you. So Paul's been arguing, I'm not a rioter. I didn't desecrate the temple. But on this second charge, the charge that I'm the leader of the sect of the Nazarenes, this is what Paul says, verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection both of the just and the unjust. So I will always, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. See, what the Apostle Paul is saying is, I, I am a true Jew, And I belong to the true Israel. I have the same, I worship the same God that these men worship. I believe in the same scriptures. Back then they only had the Old Testament, not the New Testament yet, that they believe. I share the same hope they have for the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. 
And I cherish the same ambition to keep my conscience clear. By the way, Felix, that's why I was in the temple when these guys seized me, when I wasn't causing anybody trouble. I was minding my own business. I was worshiping God. I was giving them money. See, Paul was Cuban, so he was going like this, okay? And he's, I was doing all these things. He says, I am not a rioter, and I am not desecrating the temple. In fact, if you want to call me a leader of the sect of the Nazarene, sure I am. But let me, let me give you another term, Felix. I call it the way. By the way, that was the preferred term for Christians then. The way. What is the way? The way of Jesus. I'm a follower of the way of Jesus. And what Paul is saying is, the way of Jesus is what true Israel should follow. There's your faith. I am true Israel. I'm not some sect. I'm not some innovator. I'm not some some purveyor of, of of a new religion. No, no, no. I am sharing with you. I've been sharing with them. I've been an open book over these last 15 years. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Everything we believe as Jews finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. All the promises given to our forefathers in the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And I bet you Paul just got up and started preaching. He said the promise that God gave to Adam and Eve right after the fall in Genesis 3.15 when he says the offspring of the woman is going to bruise the head of the offspring of you, the serpent. And right there, God promises a redeemer right after the fall. Jesus is that offspring of the woman who bruised the head of the offspring of the serpent on the cross. You can imagine he was thinking, listen, Felix, and by the way, he's, telling, he's talking to Felix, but he knows the Jews are listening. So he's defending himself against these three charges, two of which are spurious, but one of which he's copying to, but he's saying, yeah, I confess I'm a leader of that, but it's not a sect, it's the way, the way of Jesus. And all true Israel follows that way. That is what a true Jew does. Because the promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1-4, that through you I will bless the nations, Jesus is the one through whom God blesses the nations. The promise that God gave to Moses, that there will be a prophet greater than you, Moses, that won't just lead my people from physical bondage out of Egypt, but from spiritual bondage out of the world and from Satan's clutches, not just Pharaoh's clutches. That spiritual prophet, that prophet greater than Moses is Jesus. And the promise that God gave King David in Psalm 110 that says, David, there will be a king that comes here that is greater than you. And that king will rule the world with an iron scepter. Paul is saying that king, that king who is greater than David is Jesus. And when Paul came to the prophet, or when God came to the prophet Isaiah and said there will be a servant who will suffer. And that suffering servant will pay for the sins of my people. He would be pierced through for their transgressions. He would be crushed for their iniquities. That suffering servant is Jesus. And every Jew knew that was speaking of Messiah. Friends, we got to learn that story. And if you didn't catch every one of those references, I'm going I'm to really try to put those references on the internet for you. But that's the big picture. This, this is the big picture of God's salvation story. That Paul was sharing his faith, addressing these three charges, and on that second charge, that middle charge, that he was a leader of a sect, he was saying, no, I, I'm a follower of the way, and the follower of the way is true Israel. You know, and, and as Paul rested his case, as Paul finishes preaching, probably louder than I just did and probably with more passion than I did because they were very passionate people back then and this was a passionate issue. Just think the Zimmerman trial. Think some of the passions that were ignited there, okay? There was some real passion. There was death threats there. I mean, here there weren't death threats. I mean, there were death oaths. People said, I'm not going to eat until I kill this guy. I'm not going to drink until I kill this guy. That's pretty serious. So, so there was passion, and when he's done, I could just hear Paul shouting. I could just hear Paul. He's, he's, he's talking to Felix, and over there are the Jews, and he says, listen, I am innocent of these charges. Yes, I will confess. I follow the way. But listen, let these guys accuse me. Let these guys say what wrongdoing that they have found when I stood before their council. Remember last week he stood before their council in Jerusalem? 
But other than this one thing, so they can't find anything wrong with me other than this one thing. I, I am here on trial for my faith in Jesus Christ. The way he said it is here, I am here with respect to the resurrection of the dead. May that be our confession, friends. Well, what will you say? Not only do you give them the big picture of God's salvation story, but point three, friend, we've got to describe the details of faith in Christ alone. So, get this. Get this. You got to get this. God's wanting you to get this. The world should be asking you about this. And if not, just go kick in a few doors and just offer to tell them about it, okay? Uh, Get the big picture. Get creation, fall, redemption. Get the big picture of the Bible. Get it in your head. It's not that hard. Okay? God gave us stories because he knew we were not, not the sharpest ones in the world, okay? He gave us stories with really weird things that we can remember of how God saved us and his plan marching through history. That's what I just talked about. I'm going to try to post those scriptures for you. But then, number three, we've got to get into the micro. So get the macro. I was an economics major. There was macroeconomics, which was, was the big picture of how economies flow. And then there's microeconomics, which I did poorly in because it had a lot of calculus, which was how a little company okay, made money. We're going into the microeconomics in point three. These are the propositions, the propositional truths of faith in Jesus. Now, before I get there, let me just share with you why Paul had that opportunity. If you look here in the scriptures, in verse 22, Felix says, hey, there's not enough proof. Felix knew that Paul wasn't guilty of these things. But you know what? I want to talk to Lysus, who is the commander from Jerusalem when he gets here, you know. And then it just, the the word tells us in verse 24 that after some days... Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So apparently there was this public trial, and then the public trial created an interest in Felix for a private audience. Some say he was just looking for money. Maybe, maybe. I think he was also interested. His wife is Jewish, the whole thing about Israel. He's probably kind of liking it that these Jewish leaders are all up in arms, right? He's the Roman governor. They probably have been giving him headaches. So he's kind of enjoying that they're just getting dressed down. And like Paul won, like, whoa, because the Holy Spirit was with them, you know? And the high Tertullus lost, all right? I don't know if he charged them his fee, his lawyer's fee, but he lost. And so he says, Paul, tell me more about this faith in Jesus Christ. And it's interesting. Paul uses three terms to describe faith in Jesus. And these three terms, we've got to learn these three terms. They're not there yet, but they're going to be in faith, okay? We've got to learn these three terms because they're the terms Paul used in defending himself, and this is the story that God wrote for the first century church, and it's the story for the 21st century church so that we know what to say when we're questioned about our faith. You get that? All right. So, what are the three terms he used? Verse 25, let's look at them. And... As he reasoned, so he's reasoning with him, about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. These three terms have been called at times the three tenses of salvation. Is Katrina in the room? Yes. Katrina's going to love me right now. Getting into grandma, Katrina. The three tenses of salvation. Past tense. Righteousness, present tense, self-control, future tense, judgment. You're looking at me going, all right, Pino, how do you get that out of this scripture? Well, I'll tell you how I get that out of this scripture, smarty pants. (laughs) I get it out of the scripture because I've got to think to myself, the Apostle Paul is using these categories to preach the gospel to uh, Felix. Where would Paul have expressed the theology of faith in Christ Jesus. Where, have Paul, where would Paul have spoken about salvation in his writings? Do I have any writings that perhaps he wrote just prior to this court case? I do. Which ones? Do you remember? The book of Romans. If you remember, if you could show the map back up on the screen for a moment. 
Paul is at the end of his third missionary journey right now. He's going to be in prison from now on till the end of the book of Acts. So, he's, so the third missionary journey ended with his imprisonment in Jerusalem. Do you remember he began that journey in Corinth? You see where it says Achaia? This is modern day Greece. I think Elena Rodriguez is in Greece today. Some of you wish you were in Greece today, right? Okay, so in Achaia right here, Corinth. So he started the journey there and he went all the way around to Jerusalem. While he was in Corinth, theologians tell us, historians tell us, he wrote the letter, the epistle to the Romans. There's a church in Rome, hence the book to the Romans. Peter was the pastor of the church in Rome. All good Catholics know that, right? So, and so he was writing an epistle to the church in Rome, and so he had just written that a couple of months earlier. So if I want to understand the words righteousness, self-control, and judgment, let me go to the book of Romans to understand them. We're going to go there in just a moment. So describing faith in Christ, the first bullet under that, Paul spoke of righteousness, the righteousness of God. And if we read Romans 3, 21 to 26, write that down, which I have here on the screen, Romans 3, 21 and 26, we're going to be informed what Paul was thinking when he spoke of righteousness here. And listen to what Paul was thinking. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in the divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Listen, before God, we are all legally guilty. I mean, Bentley did a great job of sharing that, right? During worship, right? If you were a guest, you were thinking, wow, it's a great church. This guy's giving me the bad news right at the beginning. But it's true bad news. We are legally guilty. We've broken his laws. But because Jesus took our punishment, there's a big fat word in there. Oh, can we get the scripture back? There's a big fat word in there called propitiation. There you go. Good luck finding it, but it's in there. Um, and, And what it means is taking the punishment, taking the wrath of God. Because Jesus took our punishment by dying on the cross, God legally declares us innocent. So you see this word righteous. You can circle how many times the word righteous is in, in there. It's a great exercise. It's God's righteousness. It's a foreign righteousness. If you grew up in the Catholic Church, you would have been taught that it's not a foreign righteousness. It's a righteousness that becomes yours through the elements. But Scripture says, no, it's a righteousness that is foreign to you. It is God's righteousness that he imputes or gives to you through Christ. That's what all that means. That's what Paul preached to Felix. That's what we've got to preach to others. And because we had that righteousness, he justified us, past tense, dear believer. And if you're here as an unbeliever, know this, you can be justified as well. If you would simply believe this, repent and put your trust in Christ. So so this first point is past tense. I have been saved. I can't be any more saved than I am right now. I can't be any more justified than I am right now. I can't be any more righteous than I am right now because I have the righteousness of Christ according to that text in Romans, according to what Paul preached Felix. Next, self-control. What is Paul thinking about when he's using the term self-control? He's thinking about righteous living. This is a concept in the first century that many would have been familiar with. It's a life that is lived well, that is lived rightly. Romans 8, 28 and 29. Now, self-control is going to talk present tense. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. What's God's purpose? Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There it is. His purpose is that we'd be conformed to the image of his son. We'd live a self-controlled life. The Greeks would say a wise life, a life of wisdom, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. See, for God to sanctify us means for him to progressively over time, hence, we are being saved. We have been saved. We are being saved progressively over time to help us become more and more holy. 
The, the, the theological term there is sanctification. The term here is justification. More and more holy in our words and our deeds. Listen, to slowly begin to act and think in such ways that match our legal standing. Legally, I am righteous because it's Christ's righteousness. Now, experientially, I'm becoming what I am. I'm being who I am. I've been created a new creation in Christ with his righteousness. But for some of us, there's a lot of change that has to go on, isn't there? That's being saved. And then third bullet, judgment. Judgment. Judgment is the future. I will be saved. Romans 8.30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. At the end of time, God is going to judge all people. Each and every one of us, every person that has ever lived from every age on this earth, will stand before God's judgment seat one day. That's the day of Christ's return. For those of us who have had our punishment paid for by Jesus, remember that big fat word, propitiation? Those of us that that is true for, we will stand on that judgment day and pass the judgment, not because of my righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness. And when that happens, according to Romans 8.30, put Romans 8.30 back up, we will be glorified with Christ's glory. My glory is worthless. His glory is eternally full of worth and, and that's why we worship that's why we praise that's why i yell and scream when i preach because the glory of god is upon us who don't deserve it because of what christ did on the cross and i'm working that out of my life every day today trying to be who i am by the grace of god and one day my hope is that i'm going to see jesus as he is he's going to come back he's going to glorify me dude when paul was through preaching you know what felix said get out of here Now, what's amazing when you read the text, we'll read it. Look what it says. Don't take my word for it. Drop your cell phone and read it. What does it say there at the end of verse 25? Felix was alarmed. Now, wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Felix, who's the Roman governor, who has the authority at any moment to say, take this guy out of my presence and go crucify him over there. Who, who historians tell us that daily he would send his soldiers out and sort of look for the, you know, the Jewish Jack Bowers, catch them and kill them. You're going to tell me that this Felix is afraid and alarmed from a captive Jew, a slave nation? What's wrong with that picture? Here's here's what makes that picture make sense. Friends, the Holy Spirit was there. And friends, Felix. Felix, who was on his third wife. Drusilla was his third wife. And Drusilla, who was sitting next to Felix. um, Historians say she was one of the most beautiful women in Israel. She was Jewish. She had committed adultery with Felix, left her first husband, and married Felix. And so these two powerful, beautiful people, violent people, are hearing truth. And the Holy Spirit has gotten into them somehow, some way. not saying he saved them. But he says, could you leave now, Paul? I'll call for you later. That's what's at stake here. You know, some people said, oh, you know, Felix, he was just after money. I I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I I love this quote from John Stott. (laughs) It would be cynical to suppose, however, that Felix's only motive was to hold Paul ransom. Now, we do know that was a motive. Look at verse 26. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. You see that? So we do know that was a motive. Back then, politicians, they're politicians, you know. So money is always there. But I like what Stott says. It would be cynical to suppose, however, that Felix's only motive was to hold Paul ransom. I think he knew that Paul had something more precious than money, something which money cannot buy. If his conscience had been aroused by Paul's teaching, and our teaching of Jesus should arouse consciences, I don't want to condemn, I don't want to come into this community and curse them and tell them how wrong they are. I don't want to step on people's uh, traditions, you know, whatever they might be. And in Miami, there's so many you can step on them. No, I want to honor them. I want to bless them. But, oh, friends, at one point... I'm going to preach the gospel, and that gospel is going to go in like a missile, and it's going to penetrate their conscience. 
And if we don't, who will? We are the conscience. That's when Jesus says you're salt and light. Not self-righteously. You hear me, first point, I've got to demonstrate my love. I've got to be willing to be imprisoned. But at some point, I'm going to say things, and our Felixes are going to go, can you leave? I'm alarmed. If his conscience had been aroused by Paul's teaching, and our conscience, our teaching of Jesus should arouse consciences, if you don't know the gospel, how in the world can you arouse anybody's conscience? If you're just regurgitating what I say on Sunday morning, but you don't own it, it's not in you. Friend, you're salt that has lost its saltiness. And God's calling you to get salty. You've heard of salty language? All right. Don't cuss too much. But, but be salty in a biblical way. You own it. You know the big story. You can get into the details of salvation. It's yours. And you gently, lovingly, humbly, when you're given the opportunity, Felix invited Paul. Paul didn't barge in. You share it. Then he must have been seeking forgiveness and peace. Certainly the release of Felix from sin. Oh, friends, this is crazy. The release of Felix from sin meant more to Paul than his own release from prison. Do you understand? Please put the map back up there. That Paul is in Caesarea. Do you understand that Caesarea is where Paul received a prophecy in Acts 21? No time, because I've gone way over time today. But Paul received a prophecy in Caesarea in Acts 21 from Agabus, who said, the guy whose belt this is is going to be bound by the Jews and turned over to the Gentiles. And Paul is now in Caesarea, bound by the Jews, turned over to the Gentiles. And you know what Paul said? You know what Paul said when they were saying to him, oh, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Oh, Paul, don't go there. Paul says, stop it. Do you not know that I am ready to be imprisoned and die for the name of the Lord Jesus? And he was in prison and he was going to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. These are our ancestors. This is Christianity. It's not some game that people play to see how many blessings I can get now, how comfortable I can be. This is God who sent his son to die for us saying, go and die for others. But do you know what to say? I mean, that emotion will get you kind of like three feet out the door. But you've got to learn, what do I say? Oh, learn it. Each of you has a way to say it far better than I can say it to the people God calls you to. Well, let me conclude this thing. Sadly, friends, Felix, there is no evidence that Felix ever repented. No evidence at all. We see in verse 27, he keeps him in prison, hoping to curry favor with the Jews and still looking for money from Paul. Poor Felix remained a captive of his greed for both money and glory. Dear friend, do not remain captive to your greed for money and glory or anything else. Friends, here's the bottom line. It's up to God to release him but it's up to us to preach the good news. Our call on the screen, our call is to know what to say when questioned about our faith. God's call is to grant that faith in Jesus Christ. My appeal, church, is that we would be faithful in this, that you would tell your Felix about your faith in Jesus Christ, speaking to his conscience, not condemning him, not trampling on his traditions. No, don't be a self-righteous person. Honor their traditions as much as you can that Scripture allows your conscience to. Bring, serve them, demonstrate your desire to bless, and then declare the big picture of God's salvation story, and then describe the details of salvation. Friends, they're going to invite you to, to talk. If you do that, you bring a bunch of money to somebody, like Paul did, you honor their traditions, you try to speak Spanish if you're not a Spanish speaker, you get an audience. Try to speak English if you're not an English speaker, you get an audience. People understand the effort you're making. That's what Paul was doing here. And when you have that opportunity, what will you say? Tell them, tell them, tell them, oh, 
dear friends of God's love and his holiness. Give them the good news. Give them the bad news. Tell them how we all need to be forgiven and redeemed. Tell them of the details of Jesus Christ coming to die for their sins and rising for the forgiveness of their sins. Bring them the truth. Show them where it says that in the Bible. Know your Bible and then ask them if they would like to keep talking and maybe do a one-on-one Bible study or bring them to church or What will you say when questioned about your faith? Consider this question and do the work you need to be able to answer it. No time for worship. I'm just going to close this in prayer in a blessing. Lord God, I pray that you would please, as I, as I preach this, I'm preaching to myself. I, I have often either been cowardly, Lord, or just selfish. I've got my agenda in life. I've got my things I want to get done. I'm in a hurry. I'm beeping my horn, weaving through traffic. I'm, uh, I'm telling people at the counter to hurry up because I, I want to get home. Uh, I did that just the other day at Payway. Oh, Lord, forgive me. I'm such a selfish man. Paul is willing to be in prison even to die in Jerusalem for the sake of your name. I'm not willing to wait an extra 10 minutes at Payway for the sake of your name. Lord, would you please forgive me? I'm so sorry. And, and I thank you for the gospel that I'm going to be preaching, that I have been saved. I have the righteousness of Christ and that I'm being saved, that you're changing me from being this impatient, selfish guy. And Lord, my hope is one day I will be saved. I, w- I will see you face to face. I'll be like you. That's what your scripture says. And Lord, may that motivate me. May it motivate us as a church. May we be a church that faces you squarely, firstly, cares for one another. Oh yeah, but then, oh Lord, we'd be aggressive of facing outward and reaching our community, God. And we'd know what to say. Just take a moment to just, if if God's convicting you of anything right now, just speak it to him privately. You may be repenting and putting your faith in Jesus, and if so, after the service, I'd love to talk to you. But just take a moment to do some business with God, friend. I don't want to interrupt anyone, but let me just bless you. This blessing comes from Colossians 2, 4-6. And it's Paul's request for prayer so that he could be bold in his witness for Christ. So here's my prayer. I pray my blessing is may God bless us with an open door to declare the mystery of Christ, church. May God give us the grace to be willing to be in prison, to have our freedoms curtailed, for the sake of the name of Jesus. Church, may we, may you and I, make it clear how we ought to speak. May we walk in wisdom, church, with outsiders, toward outsiders. May we, may we make the best use of our time. Church, may your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, with salt, with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer every person. Amen and amen.